Welcome to the Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. I'm Tom Gilligan, Director of the Hoover Institution. The principles of individual economic and political freedom, private enterprise, and limited representative government were fundamental to the vision of our founder, Herbert Hoover, and remain as compelling to us now as they were more than a century ago. A preeminent research center, the institution has remained steadfast in its commitment to finding solutions grounded in history, data, logic, to many of the most difficult challenges that we face. The dissemination of our work has led to significant impacts on important public policy initiatives here and around the world. These briefings provide an opportunity to hear directly from some of our distinguished scholars on a wide array of domestic and international issues. Thank you for joining us, and I hope, to, I hope you find value in today's discussion. As a reminder, we, we will be taking audience questions, and I want to encourage you to use your Q&A button at the bottom of the screen to submit your questions. Today's discussion is with renowned China expert, Elizabeth Economy. Liz is currently a Hoover Distinguished Visiting Fellow and will be joining us in the fall as a Senior Fellow. She is currently the CV Star Senior Fellow and Director for Asia Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Liz is an acclaimed author and an expert on Chinese domestic and foreign policy and was named one of the quote unquote, the 10 names that matter on China policy by Politico magazine. Her recently released book entitled The Third Revolution, Xi Jinping and the New Chinese State, analyzes the contradictory nature of reform under President Xi. Liz, thanks for joining us today. And you're, just for the audience's knowledge, you're coming to us from New York City, is that correct? I am indeed, from the you're, epicenter. You're downtown in the epicenter. Good. Well, stay healthy, but thanks for calling in today. We appreciate it. Uh, let's, uh, you're, you're such a, a deep, knowledgeable expert of China. Let's start with some maybe some facts people don't know about China. Tell us a little bit about the Chinese Communist Party. Who's in it? Uh, what, are, what are its governance responsibilities and goals and mission? Uh, and just, just whatever you think we need to know about it. Sure, okay, so it's a big, big opening question. Books have been written on this, but let me, let me try to just uh, scope it down a bit. Um, so the Chinese Communist Party is uh, really the sole uh, governing party uh, in China. Um, there are about 90 million uh, members of the party. Uh, roughly about 7% of the Chinese population uh, belongs to the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, it is highly selective, so it's not like uh, the Democrat or the Republican parties here in the United States where you can simply sign up and register uh, to be a Democrat or Republican. Uh, you have to apply and uh, go through a series of of tests, both in terms of your leadership potential, your loyalty to the party, your knowledge of the history of the party. Uh, so really only about 10% of the people who apply for membership uh, eventually become members. And some people apply several times over a period of a couple of years. Uh, in fact, Xi Jinping himself uh, reportedly uh, had to apply 10 times uh, before he was accepted uh, as a member of the Communist Party. Uh, the reason that being a member matters um, is really because the Communist Party members are the ones who occupy all of the most important positions in government. So if you're interested in serving in government, for example, if you want a civil service job, 60% of all civil service jobs require that you're a member of the Communist Party. And certainly in the upper echelons of the Chinese government, the top leadership positions, if to be the head of the ministry or a head of a state-owned enterprise, uh, you have to be uh, a member of the Communist Party. I mean, 99% of those positions are filled by, um, by party members. Mm -hmm. um, you can kind of think of the party as a, a pyramid in, in terms of its uh, overall structure, with uh, the general secretary of the Communist Party, Xi Jinping, uh, sitting at the apex, 
then you have the standing committee of the Politburo, which includes Xi Jinping and another uh, six uh, members. Then you have the Politburo, which adds an additional 18. Uh, so all told, you have 25 members of the Politburo, only one of which I will point out is a woman. Um, and then moving down a level, you have the Central Committee, uh, and that's uh, about um, 200 uh, full members and 170 or so alternate members. All told, those 400 to 410 members uh, from the Xi Jinping down through the alternate members of the um, Central Committee, really those are the 400 most important people uh, in China's political system, and they sit on top of that you know, 90 million uh, Communist Party, uh, member Communist Party. Mm -hmm. the, uh, a, a citizen of China who is not in the Communist Party, do they have different political rights? Are they less status? Or how, how do we think about a non-Chinese Communist Party member in China? Well, they don't necessarily have fewer political rights. Um, they have fewer political responsibilities, certainly, because uh, members of the Chinese Communist Party uh, you know, where they work, they belong to a party cell, they'll have to meet, you know, sometimes weekly or even more often to discuss, you know, Xi Jinping's uh, most recent uh, speech or his activities. Mm -hmm. uh, there's even an app on a phone now where if you're a member of the Chinese Communist Party, you have to take quizzes on what Xi Jinping's, you know, thought is about or what, you know, his activities were recently, recent party dogma, uh, take these quizzes and report them to the local um, party head of your a work unit, um, the anti-corruption campaign that Xi Jinping launched uh, when he first came to power back at the end of 2012 has targeted Communist Party members, not the broader public. Uh, mm -hmm. So when you see numbers of 500 and 600,000 people every year being detained for corruption, those are all members of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, it used to be that being a Chinese Communist Party member gave you not only political advantages, which it still does certainly, but also economic advantages because a lot of party members would use their position for personal economic gain. Mm -hmm. But that's one of the things that Xi Jinping has really targeted with this anti-corruption uh, campaign. Mm -hmm. In terms of the broader rights of the people, essentially they're the same. So whether you're talking about the surveillance system or you know, internet restrictions or whatever else it might be, uh, those, those things apply equally to party members uh, and non-party members. Uh, but it does mean that you are outside the political uh, power structure. And right. it means you have very little agency in terms, if you're not a party member, very little agency, very little ability to influence the political system and, and, and really the political world around you. I see, I see. Let's talk about Xi Jinping. He's a Chinese, China's current leader. Uh, tell us about how he got there, uh, what he's about, how he's different from past leaders that China has had. Sure. Um, so uh, Xi Jinping, you know, follows on the heels of Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping and Jiang Zemin and most recently Hu Jintao. Um, and Xi Jinping was elected as, uh, selected, I should say, as General Secretary of the Communist Party uh, at the end of 2012 and became president of the country in the spring of 2013. Um, you know, he is he's ushered in, I would say, a fairly uh, dramatic uh, set of policies uh, that are producing uh, quite a different China from the one that we had come to know uh, over the course of uh, the previous you know, 30 or so years uh, from the time that Deng Xiaoping took power in the late 1970s. Uh, and I think of it really in terms of four 
pretty significant shifts in the way that she is governing the country. Um, the first is in terms of his own consolidation of power, you know, own uh, consolidation of power of institutional power into his own hands. You know, she sits on top of all of the most important committees and commissions that oversee uh, large parts of Chinese domestic and foreign policy. Um, under Deng Xiaoping, Deng had moved away from the one-man authoritarian uh, rule of Mao Zedong to form a more collective and consensus-based decision-making process. And one of the, the reforms that Deng undertook uh, very soon after he came to power in 1982 uh, was to institute a two-term limit for the presidency mm -hmm. uh, because he didn't want anybody uh, to have so much power that they could uh, you know, wreak the kind of chaos that Mao did uh, over the course of, of his tenure. Uh, but Xi Jinping managed uh, in 2017 to upend uh, that two-term limit on the presidency. So he can now hold three positions, General Secretary of the Communist Party, President of the country, and uh, Chairman of the Central Military Commission uh, for his life. This was a really big deal. Got a lot of attention here in the United States, but it was also a very unpopular move in China. Um, so that's the first big shift, is just that he's taken control of a lot of power uh, in his own hands. Uh, the second shift, I would say, is that she has really moved to reassert the power of the Chinese Communist Party back into everyday Chinese political and economic life. Another hallmark of the Deng era was really withdrawing the party, allowing market forces uh, to begin to develop and to flourish, both market in terms of the economy, but also the marketplace of ideas. Yeah. Uh, so Xi Jinping, you know, has put in place this massive surveillance system, right? this sort of technological surveillance system. Uh, he's pushing forward with this idea of a social credit system, which is going to evaluate the Chinese people on their political and economic trustworthiness and then reward or punish them accordingly. So, uh, you know, some people who haven't paid their debts back in China already can't get on a train or a plane. It's part of the punishment uh, in this system. Right now, there are just 40 different pilot projects underway, but it's supposed to roll out nationally mm -hmm. uh, over the course of this uh, coming year. Um, he's also looked, she has also looked to have the party cells within, so a company or a university or any workplace, uh, have more influence within the overall direction of say what the company is doing. So uh, to have the head of a party committee uh, be the chairman of the board of the company, right? Yeah. And begin to have influence over where the company invests and the other kinds of things it does. So really uh, enhancing the, the role of the party uh, within society and the economy. Then third, um, quickly, is just Xi Jinping has made an effort uh, to control more closely what comes in and what goes out of the country. Uh, so for example, in 2017, um, a law came into force that was designed to manage foreign NGOs. Uh, and it moved control of these NGOs, of foreign NGOs, from the Ministry of Civil uh, Affairs over to uh, the Ministry of Public Security, which just shows you the different mindsets. Xi Jinping is always talking about foreigners as hostile foreign forces who are seeking to undermine uh, the stability of, of the uh, Chinese society, of the Chinese Communist Party. And so before this law passed, there were about 7,000 foreign NGOs operating in China. And they worked on things like the environment or poverty alleviation, very strong partnerships with their, uh, Chinese, um, with their Chinese partners. At one point, 
uh, you know, and foreign NGOs and foundations were responsible for funding about 90% of China's uh, environmental NGOs. Uh, so really an important partnership that had been developed over uh, the years. Um, but after the law came into force uh, in 2017, that number dropped to about 500. Uh, so much less opportunity for uh, exchange between the international community uh, and Chinese civil society. Uh, another example on the economic front would be to look at the Made in China 2025 program, which is really about, uh, you know, keeping foreign firms from competing on an even uh, playing ground in 10 uh, areas of critical cutting edge technology, everything from new materials to new energy vehicles to artificial intelligence. Uh, to uh, medical devices, right? Mm -hmm. So developing a system of restrictions and regulations that make it very difficult uh, for them to compete because China wants to control and dominate in those fields, both within China for now and then globally. And then finally, um, and we can talk more about this uh, if people are interested in the Q&A, uh, really Xi Jinping has moved very far away uh, from Deng Xiaoping's sort of mantra of high brightness, cherish obscurity to develop a much more expansive and ambitious foreign policy. Um, you know, his sort of narrative of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation uh, has a lot to do with reclaiming a degree of centrality for China on the global stage. Uh, and so we've seen whether it's dealing with issues around sovereignty, Taiwan, Hong Kong, the South China Sea, or his Belt and Road Initiative, or efforts to change norms and institutions and global governance, so on human rights or internet governance, for example, uh, that Xi Jinping very much wants um, uh, the world to align with what he considers to be uh, China's values and, and preferences uh, in policy. So yeah. a pretty significant shift across the board from uh, that period that we had come to know as, uh, you know, reform and opening. Is he the most authoritarian leader since Mao? I, I, absolutely. I don't think there's, there's any question uh, that uh, we have not seen the type of uh, consolidation of power, uh, the sort of personality cult uh, that Mao had, you know, we see Xi replicating that to some extent. There are like 150 different institutes in China now that are devoted solely uh, to the uh, study of Xi Jinping thought. Uh, he's uh, taken on the monikers, uh, the appellations uh, that Mao had of the people's leader uh, that, you know, and, and the chairman um, that previous leaders from Deng Xiaoping through Hu Jintao did not take. So he's, he's really reverted um, and adopted many of sort of the Maoist tendencies. Uh, he's taken those on board uh, in his tenure. I think to the great surprise, certainly of, of China watchers in the West, uh, who I don't think would ever have predicted this kind of reversion, but I think also for many Chinese uh, who really didn't expect this. Is he a popular leader amongst the Chinese people? You know, I think um, there are a lot of different views of Xi Jinping uh, in China. Um, and I think maybe one way to think about it is that there are a lot of people who perhaps are not um, big fans of the direction in which he's been moving the country domestically, who don't like the curtailment of their freedoms, who don't like internet restrictions, who don't want to be told how many hours of video games they can you know, play, or who don't want, you know, at one point, uh, Xi Jinping banned all new video games from being developed for a period of about six months, uh, wouldn't allow uh, new video games to come uh, out from market. 
Um, so, you know, that doesn't help Chinese companies that are, are, you know, in business in that area. So I think in, especially in areas of, of creativity, of entrepreneurial spirit, you know, mm -hmm. much of the direction in which Xi Jinping is moving the country and that's sort of antithetical to the interests of, of those people. Uh, but I do think on the international stage, uh, there is a sense of some pride. Uh, that uh, that great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation narrative that I mentioned that Xi Jinping is bringing back some of the grandeur of China. You know, for decades, the Chinese people have been inculcated with this idea of the century of humiliation when, you know, there were foreign invaders and, you know, from the mid 1830s to the um, to the mid 1940s, uh, where China was invaded and occupied by various European powers and uh, that Xi Jinping has, you know, once and for all put that to rest. And now you have China on the global stage as a global power, second only to the United States. I think for the most part, uh, that is you know, very well received among the broad uh, swath of the Chinese population. Let's talk about COVID-19 in China. Started there, hit them pretty hard. What's been the impact of COVID-19 on their economy? So certainly COVID-19 has hit the Chinese economy uh, very hard. Uh, already before uh, the pandemic, uh, looking back to 2019, the Chinese economy uh, had been slowing. You know, they'd had 20 months of you know, declining auto sales, electronic sales, all these you know, consumer products were down, concerns around the real estate market. Um, so th there was already a sense that 2020 was going to be a difficult year. Um, and they were already planning to set the a target for uh, GDP growth at a slightly lower level. Um, but I think, you know, COVID-19 smacked them in the face. And uh, obviously the first quarter numbers, you know, China experienced a contraction, the economy uh, contracted by 6.9%. Uh, mm. uh, IMF has predicted that uh, growth for this year is going to be 1.2%, you know, a far cry from, uh, you know, what it had hoped would be somewhere between 58 to 6.2%. Uh, and in terms of unemployment, uh, you know, officially, the unemployment numbers are bouncing around between about 5.9 to 6.2%. But if you include all of the migrant workers or individual entrepreneurs who are not covered in the social insurance program, uh, that number, you know, balloons to uh, as much as 20%. Um, mm -hmm. That was a number that came out of a securities firm, Juntai Securities. <laughs> Unfortunately, apparently the person who put that number out there uh, was uh, dismissed uh, soon after uh, he, he mentioned that fact. So, um, so they're facing a lot of pressure. And, you know, again, last year in 2019, they'd already formed a new leading group on uh, employment, which is a signal that they are, were concerned about employment already. Because the leading groups are these very top level groups that address sort of the most important issues that the uh, Chinese Communist Party has to uh, face. Uh, and they've just established a new one just a few weeks ago, basically on uh, maintaining peace and stability. Uh, so between the unemployment leading group and a maintaining peace and stability, you see that they are very concerned about the potential for unemployment uh, and social unrest uh, during this very uh, challenging uh, economic period. Yeah. The, uh, we all see numbers of infections and deaths coming out of China. How reliable are those numbers? So, you know, all numbers in China have to be taken with a grain of salt. I think, uh, you know, every year people question the GDP statistics and, you know, people are always trying to develop alternative ways uh, to 
um, you know, sort of calculate what China's GDP really is, looking at electricity or, or uh, you know, sort of the um, uh, tra traffic and trains and trucks. And, and uh, so it, there are always doubts. You know, at one point, China revised uh, its coal consumption statistics, you know, for over a decade, revised them up, you know, 15 per or more percent. So uh, I think it's, it's reasonable to assume uh, that the number of deaths and cases have been uh, underreported, uh, despite the fact that they did do a revision uh, a few weeks ago and, and uh, increased the number of, of deaths that, that they reported. Um, still, I don't think it's, it's approaching what the United States is experiencing. Um, uh, but I, I do think that we can't really rely on, on the numbers uh, that they're presenting. You know, part of it may be because certainly in the initial stages, uh, a lot of people just went unreported. And then you also have to consider that for many local governments, uh, you know, they don't want to be uh, held responsible uh, for, you know, new outbreaks and, and more deaths. Uh, so there really is a strong incentive uh, to underreport. And they don't have the same transparency that we have. They don't have an independent media going after uh, these types of things. And when they did in the early stages uh, of the pandemic, when you had all these citizen journalists and you had journalists rushing uh, to Wuhan to try to uh, get accurate, to do accurate reporting, um, you ended up with you know, stories about how the numbers that were coming out of the hospitals uh, did not accord with the records in the hospitals or with you know, the, premature, the activity of the crematoriums. Uh, and so you really began to get the sense that um, that they were not uh, reporting accurately. But of course, you know, they've now detained, arrested as many as a thousand of those uh, people who were uh, doing that kind of on the ground reporting. Um, and some of them are still missing. Uh, so we're not getting that kind of transparency that we would need to make an accurate assessment. Got it. Liz, there are some important political uh, meetings going on in China this week. Would you tell us what they are? and what the important outcome from those meetings will be? Sure. Um, so starting at the end of last week and running through uh, the end of this week, uh, we have the uh, Liang Hui, which are the two sessions. Um, and they bring together um, the National People's Congress, which is kind of our congressional equivalent, but a little bit different. And then the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, which is an advisory body to the National People's Congress. and that. CPPCC includes members of parties that are not the Chinese Communist Party. So it includes members of parties, for example, that were uh, original to the founding of, of uh, China that existed before the Communist Party uh, took power back in 1949. Um, so they have some historical uh, resonance. Um, and also representatives of various sectors of society, like you know, tech entrepreneurs will be members of the CPPCC, some of them that aren't members of the Chinese Communist Party. In any case, it brings together roughly 5,000 people um, uh -huh. to Beijing, usually for a period of two weeks. Uh, and it's about setting the government priorities. You'll get the economic work report that uh, is delivered by a Premier Li Keqiang. Uh, and then, you know, a number of other kinds of proposals that will be debated, some very big ones and some very uh, narrowly focused things like there was a proposal in the CPPCC, for example, about what to do about medical waste um, from COVID-19, how to properly dispose of it in the sewage system. So it could be a very narrow uh, type of issue that's uh, raised. There's as many as 3,000 different proposals that will come out of 
the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, but generally what we hear about are the big ticket items. So for example, what we've heard already coming out of uh, this particular two sessions, I think the biggest first announcement was that China was scrapping its GDP target uh, for this year. Uh, and that's the first time that I've heard of them doing that in, in my memory of, of studying China. Um, and beyond that, it's significant because uh, this was the last year of a 10-year period uh, in which uh, Xi Jinping had said China was going to double its per capita uh, income from 2010 to 2020. So this should have been the capstone year where uh, he announced success uh, in doing that, but that would have required uh, meeting that you know, 5.8 to 6.2% GDP growth uh, target, which they're not going to meet. So this is an acknowledgement that they're going to fall short here. I would guess that next year they will declare victory, uh, assuming that the economy uh, rebounds. And for this year, they're saying we want to focus on qualitative growth, which has a lot to do with just maintaining employment. Uh, you know, for example, Xi Jinping has uh, told state-owned enterprises that they are forbidden from firing workers. So really that focus on employment again is, is um, you know, top of the agenda. So that's one big announcement. The second one, um, I think, is this new gigantic infrastructure plan. So they have a big fiscal stimulus plan. And as part of that, a huge new uh, investment in next generation uh, infrastructure. So that means, you know, a new another 300,000, for example, uh, 5G base stations. That's part of that. Or a massive um, effort to cover the country uh, with charging stations for electric cars. So really trying to position China uh, for you know, the next decade and beyond, you know, moving away from some of the more traditional infrastructure, airports and you know, high-speed rail, et cetera, and trying to lay the foundation for uh, the next uh, generation of China's development. Uh, so that's another big announcement. But I think one that has certainly captured the attention now of, of people here in the United States and in Europe and, uh, and certainly in Asia, uh, has been the Chinese government's uh, announcement of uh, their plans to uh, pass uh, a new law on uh, Hong Kong's uh, national security, so a national security law for Hong Kong. And um, the reason that this is significant is that, uh, as I think Secretary Pompeo suggested last week, um, the way that it's shaping up suggests it could mean uh, the death knell for, you know, one country, two systems for the mm -hmm fairly significant degree of autonomy that Hong Kong has, uh, political autonomy uh, that Hong Kong has uh, experienced uh, since 1997 and the handover, and frankly that it expected to anticipate until 2047, because that's the period, uh, you know, that the agreement, um, the, the basic law, the agreement that was struck between uh, the UK and uh, China at the time of the handover, China, Hong Kong was supposed to retain this very high degree of political autonomy, judicial independence, et cetera, uh, for that 50 year period. Um, so now we see, you know, China coming in and saying, basically, we're tired of all your protests for democracy. Um, we're tired of your, you know, uh, booing the national, you know, mainland Chinese anthem. Uh, of all your disrespect, of your failure to implement patriotic education, et cetera. And uh, they're coming in with this law against, you know, secession, sedition, you know, against foreign influence. I think in some respects, we'll have to wait to see, you know, all of the details of the law. But I think one of the most concerning elements is certainly uh, the plan to 
uh, have China place, uh, you know, its uh, public security bureaus uh, inside Hong Kong. So it already has a PLA garrison there, but you know, once you put the public security people in and you start moving to the surveillance uh, system, uh, you really begin uh, to get the sense that uh, they are moving to a time when there will be no difference uh, between the way that Hong Kong citizens uh, are treated and those in the mainland uh, are treated in terms of uh, the breadth of their uh, political rights. Yeah. So it's a very concerning uh, time. Uh, Liz, Liz, Doug asked a question, what is the risk that China's hardline approach to Hong Kong will severely damage that city as an international financial center? And there's a similar question having to do with how will the U.S. react? Will they suspend the granting of special treatment to Hong Kong? Right. So, um, you know, both good questions. I think uh, in, in terms of whether it will damage uh, Hong Kong's um, uh, you know, role as a financial global financial center, I mean, one of the things that has made Hong Kong unique within the context of China is the fact that it has had judicial autonomy, that it is, uh, you know, it's transparent. Uh, it basically operates politically in many respects, uh, the same way that, you know, any other uh, country or city that has a financial center does, whether it's New York or London, uh, etc. So I think uh, if, in fact, this uh, new national security law uh, infringes or impinges um, those particular sets of uh, institutions and political values, uh, then I think you will see uh, the end of Hong Kong as a financial center on par uh, with you know, New York or London. Um, but I, I personally believe that is something that the mainland government uh, is willing to sacrifice uh, over the, the medium term. I don't think they want it to happen right away, uh, but I think for, for them, the issue of national security um, and clamping down on these protests and calls for democracy, uh, that trumps Hong Kong's position as a, as a global financial center. Uh, in terms of what the United States is going to do, yes, uh, you know, Congress passed and the president signed into law last fall, uh, the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, which uh, basically puts in place a number of, of steps uh, that the US government um, can take, beginning with a review uh, by the US State Department of whether or not uh, the mainland is infringing on Hong Kong's autonomy, whether it is undermining uh, the basic law, moving all the way to the United States, um, removing Hong Kong's special economic status. Mm -hmm. And that means that, uh, you know, right now, for example, in the midst of the you know, trade war, all the tariffs that the US government has levied on Chinese goods uh, don't apply to goods coming from Hong Kong. Uh, but that would change that. So anything that you do to China economically, would that would all happen to Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that there will be an effort to avoid this, uh, you know, not least to, because it will harm the Hong Kong people. Uh, also, the U.S. has upwards of a thousand companies uh, based in, in Hong Kong. So, you know, we would need to think through very carefully uh, how to, to, to move through this process. Um, but, uh, but I do think uh, it's, it is a, a tool in our toolbox and we put it out there and we have to be prepared to use it if things really go south. Yeah. Uh, comments on Taiwan. What does Xi Jinping have the quiz, uh, acquisitive ambitions with respect to Taiwan? I think absolutely. You know, one of the essential elements of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation is that China reclaims what it considers to be its sovereign territory. And that includes, you know, South China Sea, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. 
Uh, and obviously Hong Kong is, you know, already uh, well within the orbit of mainland China. Uh, South China Sea, Xi Jinping has made a lot of progress in expanding uh, uh, China's influence uh, in the South China Sea, its physical presence, its militarized, you know, seven artificial features that it's developed. Uh, but Taiwan so far remains outside uh, of China's uh, sort of grasp. Uh, what it really can do is deny Taiwan things, like it's denying Taiwan the opportunity to participate in the World Health Assembly and the World Health Organization uh, as an observer. Uh, it buys off, uh, you know, Taiwan's a few remaining, uh, you know, countries that recognize Taiwan diplomatically. I think it's down to 16 or 17 from uh, the 22 uh, that uh, Taiwan had back in about 2016. Um, so I think, you know, Xi Jinping, by the time he leaves office, if, if they haven't made significant uh, progress uh, toward re, well, not even re, let's just say toward uh, uh, somehow taking uh, stronger political and economic control over Taiwan, I think it will be viewed as uh, a degree of a failing uh, on his part. Uh, so I think there's no doubt that he sees Taiwan as an essential element in his long-term plans for the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Yeah. Liz, I want to pivot to U.S.-China relationships right now, and I'm, I got some really good questions, and let me just throw those out there and you could take them. Uh, Jeremy and Douglas asked a question, how do you think Xi assesses Donald Trump as an ally or a foe, personal, an impediment to Chinese policy? And Scott asked, because of what Xi Jinping has been doing, was it timely for Trump to take a harder line stance with China to move towards more balance and trade between the U.S. and China? Okay, thanks. Good questions, um, both. I think um, on the first question of how Xi Jinping views Donald Trump, I mean, you know, I, President Trump has on occasion talked about Xi Jinping and their great relationship, and, you know, he admires Xi Jinping. He views him as a good friend, um, and then sometimes he said we're not such good friends after all, so it's moved around a little bit. I have to say that I haven't seen Xi Jinping respond in kind. I haven't seen Xi say that Donald Trump is his best friend. In fact, Xi Jinping has publicly said that Vladimir Putin is Xi Jinping's best friend uh, in the international arena. Um, I think uh, Xi probably uh, views President Trump um, as a challenge. Uh, in part because uh, President Trump is unpredictable uh, and has taken, I think, a much tougher line in many instances than she probably anticipated uh, at the outset of President Trump's uh, term uh, tenure. Uh, at the same time, um, many around President Xi uh, see President Trump's sort of America first agenda and his a decision to pull out of things like uh, the Paris Climate Accord or to pull out of the end stage negotiations on the Trans-Pacific Partnership as offering a real opportunity for China, you know, to step uh, into the breach, uh, to fill the vacuum of global leadership uh, left by the United States. I don't happen to think that China's done a very good job of filling that vacuum. Nonetheless, I think from the perspective of Xi Jinping, uh, President Trump has kind of left the field wide open uh, for China at this point. So in that sense, I think he probably thinks it's um, a good thing. Um, as to whether or not uh, President Trump, uh, the Trump administration was right to take a tougher line uh, with Xi Jinping, uh, I, I happen to think that it was the right decision. Uh, I think uh, pretty much across the board, uh, that China under Xi Jinping poses a fundamentally new and different challenge uh, to U.S. interests. Uh, and you can see it, you know, 
again, in the moves that it's making right now with regard to Hong Kong or the South China Sea, its threats against Taiwan. Uh, you can see it, you know, in terms of its uh, desire to spread its influence uh, through the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, and certainly at the level of, of global institutions in the United Nations um, and elsewhere, where it's really working hard uh, to sort of transform uh, norms around human rights I and mean, what constitutes, you know, a human right. Um, is it inalienable? Uh, as you know, we in the United States believe, and as is enshrined in the United Nations, or is it determined by the state, uh, which is you know China's position? So, uh, I think in many respects, uh, the Trump administration was right uh, to push back against China and push back hard. Uh, where I think the administration perhaps has fallen short, um, probably in two areas: one, uh, in terms of articulating a positive narrative about what the U.S. stands for and what the U.S. brings to the table. Um, so are we, in fact, in support of the liberal international order, of freedom of navigation, of free trade, of, of human rights? President, We don't hear President Trump talking about those kinds of values and norms very often. So we're in a much more reactive and defensive position, pushing back against a lot of Chinese initiatives uh, in a way that I'd rather see us being more proactive. Uh, and second, I think there are still more opportunities to work with our allies to bring pressure against China. And, and here, I think many people in the administration are working hard and working effectively with our allies uh, in ways that kind of go unnoticed by a lot of, um, uh, of people not in the administration, uh, but in particular, if you look at Japan and Australia, but there are many more opportunities, particularly with our European partners uh, that we should be trying to work with them, you know, not just beating them over the head about, you know, 5G and Huawei or threatening them with, you know, trade war and this kind of thing. We have to be able to distinguish between our, our allies and our partners and, you know, countries like China that, you know, pose a true systemic, uh, you know, challenge uh, to the United States. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the Cold War uh, phrase gets used a lot to, um, predict what China and U.S. relations are heading towards. Relations appear to be worsening. I mean, are we at a point where containment and disengagement would be beneficial to the West and to the U.S., or are we not there? Or How do you assess that claim? No, I think, um, you know, I think it's a, a mistake, personally, um, to start to cast the relationship in the framework of, of a Cold War. I think moving in that direction will make uh, both, you know, China and the United States poor, both economically and politically. It will make the world less able uh, to address global challenges like climate change and, you know, refugee crisis, uh, uh, you know, and pandemics, uh, clearly. Uh, so I, I see very little to be gained from, uh, from sort of allowing the relationship to degenerate to that point. Uh, and in fact, I think we ought to be looking for common ground with China. We need a floor under this uh, relationship. Uh, so, you know, we should be working with them right now uh, on the pandemic. We should be working with them on, on climate change or public health in Africa or third, you know, third party issues. So uh, I would like to see us, you know, re-engage in dialogue with China, um, you know, not necessarily not push back where we see our interests being uh, threatened and challenged. We should, uh, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't continue to try to find uh, areas of, of partnership and and uh, and common ground. Yeah, here's a long question. I'm just going to read it and leave leave it up to you to figure it out. Right, Karis uh, asks the PRC's population is rapidly aging and likely to begin declining between two, 2030 and 2035, and its labor force is already shrinking. 
are there any open discussions at the two meetings or elsewhere about how this demographic crunch will affect the economy and what China might do to avoid going the way of Japan in the next 15 years with slow growth and rising social welfare burdens? So great. Um, yes, this demographic crunch is, is a pretty great concern to the Chinese leadership. And we've already seen them uh, in the past few years take a couple of steps uh, in, in terms of reforming the one-child policy. So now uh, every Chinese couple can have uh, two children. Uh, unfortunately, um, the Chinese people have not responded uh, to the call from the Chinese Communist Party to have more children. And so last year, uh, we saw that the um, number of births was uh, the lowest uh, since the founding of the PRC. Mm -hmm. uh, and the year before that, it was the lowest since 1961. So uh, a number of factors play into this. Uh, just the cost of uh, raising uh, children in China is, is very high, education and housing. Uh, they don't have the same kind of familial uh, support structure that they used to have. So, you know, many uh, Chinese have moved, young Chinese have moved into urban areas and, and their parents may be elsewhere now. So they don't, China hasn't developed a good support structure for that. And at the same time, uh, you have, of course, the 421 problem where you have many young Chinese uh, families who have to support their parents, right? And, and China has very much an underfunded pension system. Uh, and so, and they haven't developed a system of old age homes yet to help, uh, you know, deal with this. And so they're facing a number of sort of crises uh, related to this. In terms of what's come out of the two sessions, I have to say I've only seen one proposal that's directly related to this. Mm -hmm. um, and it has to do with uh, the women. It's, it's funny that you asked. It has to do with women uh, who are not married uh, having the capacity to freeze their eggs uh, for future use, because right now that is against the law. You can only do that if uh, you are a part of a traditional uh, heterosexual couple. So that's the only proposal I've seen coming out uh, to address that. Uh, but certainly it is a major issue and a major source of concern for the government. Uh, outstanding. Liz, thank you so much. That was a great discussion. Uh, we re really appreciate you being here. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Tom. Our next Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing will be Thursday, May 28th at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern Time with Stephen Davis and Lee Ohanian. They'll be talking about unemployment, the stock market, and our economic future. Stephen is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, professor of international business and economics at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. He's a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Affairs and an economic advisor to the U.S. Congressional Budget Office. It's also a visiting scholar at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. Lee is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of economics at UCLA. He is an advisor to the Federal Reserve Banks of Minneapolis and St. Louis, has previously advised other federal banks and foreign central banks. He is an expert on how economies recover from depressions. You can join Thursday's briefing at the same link that you signed on today. Before I let you go, I'd like to tell you about a new series we're launching tomorrow called Hoover Capital Conversations, discussing policy with policymakers. The series begins, brings together Hoover Institution fellows and leading policymakers for informed discussions between those who generate ideas enabling a free society and those who will turn them into actionable policy. By bringing together the key players in the policy development and policy execution realms, we hope to pull the curtain back on some of the discussions that have traditionally happened behind closed doors. The series examines the major policy challenges facing the United States and the world today, as well as those that may confront future generation. 
The first of the series will be will premiere tomorrow, as I said, Wednesday, 27th at 11 a.m. Pacific time and 2 p.m. Eastern time, featuring Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy, and Environment, Keith Crotch, and Senior Fellow and former National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster. They will be discussing economic statecraft and America's increasingly precarious relationship with China and our policy moving forward. To find out more and to sign up, please go to hoover.org. Again, thank you for joining us today, and I hope to see you at some future event. Have a nice day.